Father God, we thank you and we praise you for this opportunity to be in your presence singing your praises. Thank you for the words of that doxology. God, we pray that that would be written in our hearts today as we long for eternity, where we can sing that without end. Together with other redeemed brothers and sisters, Lord God, we just pray that that would be a fragrant offering to you. Pray that this morning you would prepare our hearts to be ministered to by your word and to be convicted by your word and to be built up by your word. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. By way of uh, introduction, the last two weeks we've been looking at different psalms. We looked at Psalm 49 and then Psalm 50, and today we'll be concluding with Psalm 51. The psalms are, are interesting for us to examine in that they have different authorship, different themes, and a, and a different scope. We know that the psalms can be used to minister to us devotionally, to read on a daily basis, and to encourage ourselves. We know that they can be used to minister to us theologically, understanding the depth of the God who loves us, who created us, and who has redeemed us. And the psalms also serve communally to build us up as a redeemed new covenant people. And so by means of introduction, we'll, we'll consider what it is that we've learned over the last two weeks, and we'll see it beautifully wrapped up in this Psalm 51 that we'll look at together today. In Psalm 49, what we saw is the uh, universal desire that we all have for justice, the universal problem we all have of death, and the redemption offered to us through Christ Jesus. We also saw last week that God has an accusation that he brings to his covenant people in the way that they live, in the way that they give, in the way that they thanksgive. But to me, the most intriguing thing in looking at these three psalms, and, and they're put in this order canonically, but we see the scope of each of these psalms changing. We began with a, a broad view, one that's written to all of humanity. Psalm 49 began with, hear all peoples, give ear all the inhabitants of the world. And then last week, we zoomed in just a little bit, and we, we recognized that that psalm was addressed to covenant people, those who were not honoring God with their worship and with their giving and were hypocritical. But this week, the focus is very personal. We know that God's word cuts to the very bone. And as I, I look at these psalms, I see us focusing in with the scope. First, you kind of got that, that skin layer, right? And then you, you cut it back, and you can see the, the tissue, right? And then you get to the bone. And this psalm cuts to the bone. This psalm is very personal. There's no one for you to hide behind figuratively. There's nowhere to go. This psalm, written by King David in a challenging time in his personal experience, cries out to God personally. And God in his grace and his inspired word allows us to sing along with this excerpt from what could have been David's diary. Let's look at the first two verses together, Psalm chapter 51, and then we'll take a step back so that we can all have the, the context clearly in view. The first two verses serve as a, a bit of an appeal. God being approached by David. Here's what it says. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, 
According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is David, a king on a throne, boldly approaching the throne of grace. Quite intentionally, I've uh, been learning, comparing translations, how interesting and how important it is for us to evaluate words. The version I just read from describes with two different expressions what ESV gives us as one word. I'll read it again. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. What we find in ESV is twice the word mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. As we go through the text today, we're going to look at it perhaps differently. We've all, in our Christian walk, perhaps been exposed to this psalm on a number of times. We may have memorized it. We may have sung it. And we certainly all need to apply it on a daily basis. But what I would like to do as we move through this is consider some of the words that we find. And the first word that, that comes to me as I see this appeal is mercy. We see it twice. I've mulled over the meaning of the words grace and mercy, and I've heard it given before as a practical definition, that grace is being given that which we do not deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, the flip side of the same coin, is not being given what we do deserve. If we were to look at this with the, the theology that the Bible teaches us is we don't deserve to have breath in our lungs today, but God in his grace has given us life. The flip side is, as sinners, what we do deserve is death. But God has given us mercy, and that's not what we've experienced this morning. Praise God. So the word is mercy, not being given what we do deserve. And this is part of David's opening appeal to this unique and incredible psalm. It's very important that we consider this appeal because many of David's other psalms, and altogether I believe he wrote 73 psalms. Welcome to fact check that one. 73 psalms, and many of his psalms are described as imprecatory psalms. They're psalms where, God goes, where David goes before God and he asks for justice. Destroy my enemies, those who are my adversaries, and set a snare for me. Crush them, Right? But here, we have David doing something very different. Instead of asking for justice, he asks for mercy. Chew on that for just a minute. When we look at the sins of others, what is it we ask God for? Justice, right? Justice, that's what we ask him for. But when it's our own sin that we're confronted with, what do we ask for? Mercy. <laughs> that's convicting right there. We haven't even started looking at the text yet. God's mercy. Now, the context of this particular psalm is David being convicted for a willful combination of sins that grieved God, that grieved him, and put a nation, a community, at peril. To better understand this, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 14. Sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 12. We find the prophet Nathan coming to David, David having committed the atrocious sin, first of adultery, 
followed by that of setting down a, a series of lies and ultimately putting Bathsheba's husband on the front lines where his life was taken intentionally. Another word for that might be murder, right? The combination of, of, of grievances that David has done here are, we got most of the Ten Commandments right there, right? We got envy, we got adultery, we've got putting another God, before. We've, we've done it all. David's sin is grievous. And look at the encounter we have here between the prophet Nathan and David. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for him for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Look at David asking for justice, right? He's quick to ask for that justice. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing this evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite by the, with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And, David, and Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. That text offers us a lifetime of sermons in and of itself, doesn't it? Before returning back to Psalm 51, I want to make three brief observations there. First of all, God used another person to make David aware of his sin. The Holy Spirit convicts. The word of God convicts. David had both of those. But God used Nathan specifically to call him out. He went with an analogy. And he says, David, consider this circumstance. And he becomes painfully aware to David how he has grieved God, how he has sinned against God. The second observation I find in verse 8 of chapter 12. God says, I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Keep in mind that, that what we have here is 
King David, one who knows God and yet willfully sinned against him, taking for granted all that God had done for him. Last week, we, we stated, Jesus paid it all. We sang that together. Jesus paid it all. Yet we forget. So this reminder, Nathan says, God's done all this for you, and yet still you sin against him. And the, the third thing I would point out here in verse 13, Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. But he doesn't spare him a consequence, right? All of Israel would know that David would mourn the loss of the son that would be born to him in Bathsheba. There was a consequence for that sin. And that's a practical reminder for us while we will come to examine and, and, and hopefully further appreciate the grace and mercy of our Lord God. We must also understand that God's law is set to protect us from some of those consequences. So keep those three things in mind. Let's go back to Psalm chapter 51. So the, the first two verses are, are an opening appeal. God is being approached by King David. And the next couple of verses we'll see as a bit of a, a confession. The first word for us to keep in mind is mercy. The second one is the word transgression. Let's read from verses 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. What we see here is David confessing his sin. He's pointing out that his sins are ever before God. Not what we saw in 2 Samuel there. It doesn't mean that that sin is unforgiven and constantly before God, but rather that there is nothing that David could do in secret, nothing that you and I could do in secret that isn't before the eyes of a living God. That's why the text in Hebrews says it's a horrendous thing, it's a horrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. A God who is eternal, a God who is omnipresent, a God who knows not only the sins that we have committed, but those sins that perhaps we desire to commit. That's why the warning is so clear that, that thought gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death, right? May we be mindful that our sins, our thoughts, our meditations are constantly before the Lord. And the key word that I want you to see in this particular section is the word transgression. When we come to the word of God, sometimes we'll see a word that's very infrequent and that should tell us that we should go check it out. We might see a word that's very frequent and that should tell us we should go check it out. We might also find a word that we don't hear in our everyday conversation and that means we should go and check it out. So here we have the word transgress, okay? Now the word sin is remarkably polarizing in our society. The word transgression is one that you really don't hear. I love etymology. Let's look at the word together. Okay, the, the transgress, gress is to, to step, right? So if we look at a few other synonyms, we've got the word progress, to step forward. We've got the word regress, which is to step backwards. We've got the idea in, of uh, digressing, which is to step away from or step aside from. We've got the word 
agress, which of course we pronounce aggress, right? And that's to step towards, to get in somebody's face, right? We've got all these words. We've got ingress, which means to come in, and egress, which means to go out. Transgress means to step across, to step across a line. And actually, the word is, is military in nature, right? It's to step across a line. I've been watching news this week from Honduras, the country we not so recently left behind, and there's been riots all week long. And you have these police with these riot shields and people trying to step across and step through that police line. That is transgression. That is to step across a line. So as we think of the word in this context, we see David saying, for I know my transgressions. He knows what lines he's stepped across. He's got the law, right? He's got the prophet Nathan and others who would advise him and come say, you crossed a line, right? And And for the context of us, knowing from last week that we identify ourselves as new covenant believers, we can't say, I didn't know there was a line there, right? We've got God's moral will revealed for us and distilled for us and taught to us. And if that's not enough, it's written in our hearts. Transgress to step across the line. David says, against you, You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. The line is there. We know what it is. We've known when we've crossed it. And when God comes before us as our judge, he will have every right to say, I told you not to do that, right? And so so that's what we see as this context of this confession. David knows he's been convicted of his sin and he's going before God and he's confessing. And in this confession, there's two interesting things one of the commentaries that was shared with me pointed out. And that is, David is not only confessing his moral failure, but is also what this commentary calls his moral impotence, right? It says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David recognizes that this isn't just his, his moral failure, but it's also the fact that he's a sinner by nature. He was born that way. He came into the world that way. That's a tough bit of theology for us to accept, but it's the truth of it. And and David recognizes that on two accounts, without God's intervention, he has no recourse. He was born a sinner, and he willfully sinned against God and crossed that line. Good thing he started out with an appeal for mercy, right? Because that's heavy. That's heavy. We all know the lines that we cross, The next section of this text begins at verse 7. David says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. This is a familiar text to all of us. And David boldly, as he's now before the throne of God, uses imperatives and uses words that give God some direction as to how God ought to treat him. That's some remarkable boldness. David, it says, first of all, 
purify me with hyssop. Did a little word study on this hyssop thing too, and there's a couple of different understandings, but the one that I find the most visual for us to take into, into consideration is when Moses finished reading the law to the people of Israel, he takes the blood of an animal, and he takes a, a hyssop plant, which you might picture like a wicker, like a little broom, right? Like the dried plant stems, and he would dip it in blood, and he sprinkled the people of Israel with that covenant blood. And that sprinkling was a cleansing. They're cleansed by blood. So when we picture cleaning, our normal spring cleaning doesn't involve blood. But this particular picture, it might be worthwhile for us to visualize the fact that David is talking about a ritual ceremonial cleansing with blood. You see, what David wants more than anything right now is to be able to go back to God's house, to go back to God's presence yet again. But he recognizes the peril of doing that without first being cleansed. We see in Leviticus and in Numbers and throughout the law that there's no way to be near God's house or to represent God's people without first a cleansing. And this is a cleansing by blood. The author of Hebrews will help us connect that dot later on today. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The, the word that we hear, see here for wash is different than purify. Purifying is sort of a, a ritual cleansing. But now the washing that we see is that of washing clothing, making it free of stains. David didn't have a Kenmore, right? So clothing would be beaten against a rock. The process of washing was one that would involve beating a, a fabric against a stone or against a, a piece of wood. It was an arduous process to wash your clothes. It's not just throw it in and wait for it to beep, right? There's like a whole process that goes into washing of his clothes. And so David's recognizing there has to be a spiritual cleansing and a physical cleansing. And then he says, make me to hear joy and gladness. Once he's gone through that cleansing, he can then again approach God. And that's where he finds joy, proximity to God. You may have noticed that oftentimes our natural, carnal response to when we sin is to put more distance between us and God. When we have an awkward encounter or an unpleasant conflict with another human being, what do we do? We step away, right? And we do that with God, only exaggerating the problem of our sin. When there's sin there that's unconfessed, there's distance between us and God, and, and that will rob us of our joy. That'll take away our effectiveness as servants and ambassadors of Christ. So what we see here is David saying, make me to hear joy and gladness. I don't want to be apart from you. I want to draw near to you. I want that joy again. He says, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Right? Psalm 32, we hear this idea of our bones groaning when there's that conviction of our sin. We have that idea of scripture cutting to the very marrow. We have this idea of being afflicted through the guilt of having sinned against God, of having transgressed, of having crossed that line. David uses another verb that's, that's fascinating here. He says, hide your face from my sins. Look away, God, I'm embarrassed. 
right? If we go through some of the prophets in, in Isaiah, for example, when God talks about exposing the sins of his people, he talks about lifting up a skirt, right? We're talking about something that's embarrassing and shameful. King David has all of his sins committed before God. And because of the consequences, those are also aired out in front of the entire people of Israel. Nathan says, you've done this in secret. The secret's out. David says, look away. He says, blot out all of my iniquities. The idea of blotting is, is to, to wipe away or to cover up with an ink stain. What an amazing picture. We see the, the hyssop, the, the sprinkling of blood, and now we see this blotting out as of with ink or with blood covering up completely our sins. Then David says something very interesting in verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart. So we've got cleanse and we've got wash and we've got give me joy. And now he says, create in me a clean heart. And this word's fascinating because it's not recreate, it's create. The Hebrew word is the one that's used in the Genesis account. God created out of nothing. And that's what he is asking God to do for him. Create in me a new heart. Is there a good heart in David? No. It's a heart of stone. It's a sinful heart. And so what he's asking for is divine regeneration, creation, being made a new creation. And we see this echoed in Ephesians chapter four. Turn with me there if you would. Precious passage explaining this idea of creating in us a new heart. Ephesians chapter four, starting at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." This creation is not patterned after Adam, the one that introduced sin into the human race. We see this idea throughout scripture of sin coming through Adam. And that's what David recognizes when saying, look, from my mother's womb, I've been sinful. But now this recreation is not after the pattern of Adam, but after the second Adam, that of Jesus Christ. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's a completely new pattern. It's completely new. David's not asking to, to just, can we forget what happened before and start over again? He's like, no, transform me. Make what's in me that wants to cross that line, that wants to be an affront to God, that wants just what I want and make that die. Paul talks about that. Crucify the old man. Bury him. That can't happen without God divinely recreating and creating out of nothing. 
so that Christ might be honored through us. He says, back in Psalm 51, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. These verses are, are complicated ones and, it, and in fact, this text is a little bit controversial in, in certain regards. And I'll, I'll, without delving into all of the theology, I'll give you homework. He says, do not cast me away from your presence. Does God ever leave us? Does God ever forsake us? No. But in those times of unconfessed sin, there is a clear barrier between God and his people. We feel that. We suffer from that. And we ought to long to remediate that. Are we far from his presence? No. God says, turn to me while I may be found. He's there. It's up to us as believers to continually confess. If we are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, he is faithful to forgive us. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. This is the hard one. This is the tricky one. There are some commentaries that talk a little bit about this idea of, of the Holy Spirit being taken away and, and some believers might have a, a different understanding in terms of the security of salvation. Does this grievous sin compromise David's salvation? Is David at risk of, of losing this, this Holy Spirit, losing the salvation because of his sin? What we ought to understand from this is that for the old covenant believer, especially we see with some of the kings and the prophets, the Holy Spirit would descend upon them and move in them for a time. We see David dancing, right? The Spirit of the Lord came upon David and he danced and he, and he sang and he played the harp and he did these things as the Holy Spirit moves upon him. For us as new covenant believers, we understand that the Holy Spirit dwells in us dwells in us. And that's irrevocable. The book of Ephesians talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we see throughout scripture, these evidences that the Holy Spirit is not taken away from those who are redeemed and those who have been washed by the blood of the lamb. But what David is talking about here is a withdrawal of the Holy Spirit operating in his life for a time because of his sin. And we all know that we can quench the Holy Spirit. If we're instruments of God and there is unconfessed sin in our lives, we are rendered ineffective. But for the grace and the mercy of God that will restore to us that, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It doesn't say restore to me my salvation. It says restore to me the joy of my salvation. And as we saw last week, as we talked about how we ought to give and how we ought to live and how we ought to thanksgive, that joyful living is characteristic of those who know salvation. If there's not joy, and we know there's salvation, check for unconfessed sin. If there's not joy, and there's not salvation, go to Christ. Seek that salvation that is offered. We're transgressors. God's will, God's desires are put out before us. If we've sinned against them, the only remedy is to be cleansed and purified by that new covenant blood of Jesus Christ. 
there's not the joy of your salvation, check for unconfessed sin. The next portion we'll look at begins at verse 13. And it says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that I may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The word I want you to focus on here is the word contrite. And this word is a very important word. Contrite is like broken, to be trampled down, to be brought low, right? We see throughout scripture that when we're confronted with sin and confronted with his holiness, there's only one response. Isaiah says, I'm undone. We see this image of one falling down before God. Contrite. A contrite, penitent heart. One that has recognized the gravity of the sin and the size of the debt that has been repaid. If we get that, we have a contrite heart. We're burdened by our sin, but not to the point that we're paralyzed by our guilt. Christ then lifts that up and allows us to say what David's saying here. This is remarkable. David's gospel response. So what we see in the the previous verses is the message of the gospel, right? Creating me a clean heart. Renew me. And now we see David's response to that. Now that he, he is seeing this restoring of his joy, this lifting of his countenance, right? We know that after Nathan addressed David, and, and after the consequences, David lost his child, and his, his men were afraid to even go near him because he was mourning and fasting and at the point of taking his own life before this child was taken away. The child dies, and David's men were so concerned about him that they wouldn't approach him. He was in isolation. He was in the deepest pit of despair. But God, in his grace, forgives him restores to him his joy, his countenance changes, and all of Israel is able to see that. How remarkable. That's what God does in the lives of sinners. He lifts that burden of our sins and he gives us a joy that's incomparable. What we see here is really important. I don't know um, if any of you have experienced this before, but oftentimes when we have an encounter with a new follower of Christ, that is a great joy to us, someone who is new in, in, their, in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're excited to tell us what God is doing in their lives, right? It's a joy to hear the testimony of another. And what David is now doing is he's saying, listen, as you forgive me, Lord God, I want to give testimony for what you've done in my life. There's an interesting danger here, an interesting warning that when we reflect on what God has done, and how God has forgiven us, we must always keep in mind that time in which we had that contrite heart. We've heard believers before that will spend 45 minutes giving a testimony on how they used to be in jail, or they used to do drugs, or they used to have this or that. And what we find there is that inadvertently we might be exalting the sin that we came from more than pointing to the Redeemer that we're moving towards. testimony of the transformed means showcasing how we're like Christ and not talking about how much we used to be like the devil. 
Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted to you. Before we go into that, I want to look at the word contrite in another context as well. It very much echoes what we see in Psalm 51. You'll find that in Isaiah chapter 57. If you turn with me there. Isaiah chapter 57, 15 through 19. We see God and his response to those who are broken by their sin. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I, have, that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. What a remarkable text that, that so many ways parallels what we see. We see God having hid his face while he's angry, right? God even looking away in, in anger. And we see God who's high and holy and lifted up, who also dwells with the lowly and the broken. I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For those who, who might come and, and visit our body of believers, what you hear often is that of God being a judge. We talked of that last week as he judges and indicts, indicts his, his new covenant people. And we've even perhaps amongst ourselves brought guests here before and the criticism will be, there's a lot of God being angry. There's a lot of God being judge. There's a lot of God having these really high standards that we could never match up to. Got friends that won't come back because of that. But this right here is why we keep coming back. It says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and a lowly spirit. The gospel brings us low and the gospel lifts us up. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. And look why God withdraws his anger and imparts his salvation because he wants to save and he wants to be recognized by those whom he saved. Look at verse 18. I have seen his ways. Just like David says, my ways are always before you. I've seen his ways and they're not good ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. This holy God wants to inhabit the praises of his people. He wants us to give testimony for what we've done for, what he has done for us and how he has transformed us and how he is making us to be imitators of Christ Jesus. That's what he's seeking in saving sinners. Back in Psalm 51 again, David says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. If you're following along in ESV, you'll notice that reads just a bit differently. Verse 13 in the ESV says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, 
and sinners will return to you. Now, I'm not sure which of those two translations is closest because I'm not a Hebrew scholar, nor do I pretend to be one, but it, it is interesting. One says that sinners will return to you, right? A message for those of us who know our salvation, but need to address the sin. But there's also, in NASB, this idea of sinners will be converted to you. And I think it bears mentioning that those are both valid purposes for God having redeemed us. It's to turn our brothers and sisters back to Christ when they willfully sin and grieve the Holy Spirit. And it's to bear witness to an unbelieving world that doesn't know Christ as Savior so that they would turn to him and be converted, right? That's the purpose of all of this that God wants to do in redeeming his people. He wants our praise. Look at verse 14 of Psalm 51. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Open, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. So the word blood guiltiness is kind of an interesting one. It's like a bunch of words thrown together. And if we were to go back and look at that and what it really means, the best translation is murder. Having killed someone, right? Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. David's sin was taking the life of another. It wasn't just the adultery. It wasn't just the lies. It was homicide, right? And so David recognizes that he's guilty of this capital offense. He's the leader of Israel. He's the king, right? I don't know if you can impeach a king, but the, the rules and, and the things that he's violated are so heinous that he says, God, deliver me from what I've done. That echoes of Acts chapter 9. We've just finished an amazing year and a half, maybe more, of looking at the, the book of Acts and seeing how God uses his redeemed people to, to cause the spreading of a kingdom, the spreading of a message. Acts 9 verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Blood guiltiness, right? One who is guilty of this grievous offense against others. The Apostle Paul. And look what happens to Paul and the words that come out of his mouth. Go to verse 20 of the same chapter. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Jer Jerusalem by proving that Jesus was the Christ. See, you look at that passage in Isaiah and you're like, wow, what God wants is the praise of the lips of those who have been forgiven such a great debt. And David says with a contrite heart, my debt is so vast, but God because you've repaid it, I'm going to speak of all that you've done. And Paul does the same thing. Forgive me, Lord, for my blood guiltiness. Now, let me tell you all about this Jesus that I met on the way to Damascus. 
So if you're a new follower of Christ, or if you're a follower of Christ who can, is continuing in your journey of sanctifi- sanctification, know that God has forgiven you, and part of your response, your commission, is to tell others what he's done for you. It's not to tell them how bad your sin was, it's to tell them how good your Savior is. Amen. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. That's verse 14. You can underline it if you've got your own Bible with you. Psalm 51, 14. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Verse 15. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. David must certainly have spent a time in silence. David must certainly have spent a time in isolation and depression. But as he reflects on on the joy of his salvation, on the grace and the mercy of his God, he has no choice but to, but to speak. And not to speak, but to write a song. And to give it to the choir director. And to sing it in front of the people of Israel. And to preserve it for thousands of years for God's new covenant people to know of their redeeming Savior. Do you know what it feels like to be forgiven? Do you know that, that burden that's lifted off you? If you don't, Come to Christ. And and if you don't know that joy, return to him. Verse 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. This ties in so beautifully to what we looked at last week. God says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I am not interested in your goats or your sheep or your turtle doves or anything else. What I am interested in is your heart your sincere worship and your sincere gratitude, the recognition that it has all been paid for us. And so the concluding portion of this text has a word that that comes up multiple times. Remember, we look for words that are repeated. If you go back to the beginning of your chapter, just real quick, do a skim read, count how many times you find the word delight. Okay, the last word that we'll look at this morning is, is delight. What is it that delights God? we see several times the the negative statement, what doesn't delight God? Tired of the sheep and the goats. I'm tired of these insincere sacrifices. What is it that does delight God? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. What is it that honors God? What is the the acceptable, delightful thing to him? The word delight, it's kind of an odd one. We don't hear it so often, right? That's delightful, right? But it delights God. It pleases him greatly when we come to him with a broken and a contrite heart. Our repentance are turning to him. When we have conflict with others, what's more joyful than having that restoration? That's what God desires with his people. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. This this delight idea is, is interesting, and David is now wrapping up this unique psalm that's very personal. He's put all the cards on his table. He's confessed the, the depth of the wickedness of his heart. 
He's confessed to his crime. He's confessed to God. He's claimed the forgiveness that God offers. And now he's making this not just personal, but he's making this communal. He's making this broader in scope so that it affects all of the people of the nation that he leads and loves. He's the king over what is still the United Kingdom, over Israel and Judah. His role is one of critical importance, right? God removes Saul from leadership and puts him there. He's got a pretty special role in the life of God's people. And that's really important for us to know because as we interact with one another, the unconfessed sins in our life affect this entire body. We might think that it's one challenge we have with a brother or sister, or we might think it's just our marriage, or it's just our challenge with our kids, right? But we're all in this together, right? What David is recognizing is that his sin, his grieving of God puts the entire nation at peril. That's why he says, by your favor, do good to Zion. Zion is Jerusalem or all of Israel. He says, God, if it's acceptable to you, if you'll accept my broken and contrite heart, allow me to draw near to you and do good to your people. Build the walls of Jerusalem. The idea of building the walls here is, is an intriguing one. The walls of Jerusalem had already been built at that time. There was no real backstory on the wall, right? We know Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, and we know that during the time of Jeremiah, the wall was torn down. But in David's day, the walls were intact. So why is he talking about building up the walls? But see, the walls are a delimiter, right? Everything inside that wall is Jerusalem. Everything outside the wall is not. So what he's talking about is, is Zion collectively as a people. And so for us as a, as a new covenant people, we identify that our boundaries here isn't around church membership or what part of the city you live in, right? It's around what Christ has done for us, an adoption into the family of Christ. Because of that, we do sign a covenant agreement as believers and we recognize that we are in this together. That God will hold us accountable individually and collectively for sinful hearts and for unconfessed sin. So we have to take that very seriously and that gives us a, the recognition that we speak the truth to love in one another. We call brothers and sisters into repentance. And if you've signed on the line as church membership, you should know that there are people here, men and women, that will call you out and help you to understand, just like Nathan did with David, that there is some sin that needs to be addressed. And if you receive that, thank God and repent. Turn to the Lord while he may be found. And if you've never been in that context where you've had to receive that, <laughs> praise God. But be aware that that's part of being this new covenant body. That's part of being this group of believers. David recognizes that and he says, God, I am asking for the forgiveness of my sins so that you will accept me, you'll allow me to draw near to you, and also that you won't reject your people. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. And then he says, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and the whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Again, those offerings that God had rejected, that God had said, stop, don't come to church anymore with those offerings, then they'll be acceptable because of that repentance. And that points us to the new covenant. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10.
starting at verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What a triumphant passage, right? David longed to understand this in its entirety. But here we have the author of Hebrews explaining all that to us with such depth. There's no need to offer those offerings anymore. The offering that was acceptable to God was offered once and for all. God himself came to dwell among us, offer his life to purify us. That cleansing of the blood, that was the blood of Christ. And it was done once and for all. And I love the authority with the, which, which the Bible says, and after that, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished. There's no salvation security questions here. There's no doubt for us. And in, in, did God forgive us? Do we have his forgiveness? Do we have to mope around in our guilt? No, with confidence, we appeal to God and we say, because of your loving kindness, because of your mercy. And from there, our lips, our mouth, and our lives speak of his righteousness. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. And Hebrews says, where there is a forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Praise God for that. What a, what a challenging and convicting passage. One of the things that I continue to pray for as, as I come near to God's word, that it would be something that I wouldn't just teach, but also preach. And this passage makes that pretty easy. You can't even help but read it without being preached to, right? This is so convicting. Just read it. Meditate this week, brothers and sisters, on these couple of words. On mercy. God not having given you what you've deserved. That's a great place to start. There's a, there's a lifetime of meditation that can be done right there. Know that we have transgressed. We have stepped across that line. But God has forgiven us and created in us a new heart. And because he has created in us a new heart, we have this, this contrite spirit of repentance. And because of that, we delight in him and he delights in our praises. May we live the joy of our salvation this week, brothers and sisters. Let's pray and, and thank God for the convicting of his word through this passage. Father God, we come before you and we, we thank you that you have not dealt with us as we've deserved it, but you've dealt with us according to your mercy. God, you are a God who is slow to anger and, and you are one who forgives and you're forbearing with us. God, forgive us for the times that we take that for granted. 
as David failed to take into consideration all of the great things that you had done for him, would you forgive us, Lord God, for the times that we don't take into account all that you have paid on our behalf? Forgive us, Lord God, for what would be trampling the sacrifice of the Son of God underfoot. Forgive us for those times where we, we take that for granted. God, I pray for the body of believers in this room. I just pray that if there's unconfessed sin, if there's things that are impairing marriages, that are impairing relationships between parents and children, between others and the, the family, Lord God, that you would convict of that, that you would allow there to be a, a repentance and a turning to you, and that out of that you might be praised for reconciling circumstances. For any that might be here that might come with a, a weight of guilt for things that they've done wrong, knowing in their conscience that they've crossed a line that they've offended you, Lord God, may you speak to them. May they not go away from this place thinking of you, Lord God, as, a, as an angry God that offers no recourse, but rather one that paid it all so that there would be a recourse, so there would be forgiveness, there would be a, a lifting of that burden, Lord God, so that they too could sing the praises of what you've done for them. God, as we enjoy a time of fellowship and we prepare for um, a week with family and friends and being out in the world, may we open our mouths, use our lips to sing your praises. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.